Welcome to my podcast. I'm recording this from inside the castle, the smoking room, a beautiful tangerine-coloured, large, high-ceilinged room with magnificent paintings. But I'm sitting next to a magnificent man, Colin Bell, a mosquito pilot from World War II, heading towards 100 years old next year. We're all going to be celebrating, and it's a great honour to be sitting here with him today. Welcome, Colin. Thank you so much for joining me today. And I know you're 99. Can I say that? You can indeed. But you're looking good. You've got no wrinkles. I want to know your secrets. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I, I'm frequently asked that question. I say it's really a matter of luck and genes. And the genes are a matter of luck. But to keep people amused, I usually say... It's a, a matter of exercise, alcohol, and the love of good women. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's a great pleasure and indeed an honour to be with you. I'm absolutely delighted. So I know that you were born in 1927. 21. 20, oh, sorry. You were born in 1921, which was just after the First World War. And during the First World War, many men from the Royal Flying Corps had come to Highclere. It was a hospital and they were treated by the earlier Lady Carnarvon. They were very well fed. Yes. They gave, were given excellent beer and red wine and, and whiskey. And they were such extraordinary, courageous men because they went back again to climb in their very early flying machines yes. in support of their comrades yes. in World War One. I. I mean, extraordinary courage. And then leading from that, it led obviously to the Royal Air Force, which you, I know, took part in in World War Two, Colin. The flying aces of World War One were remarkably courageous and the, um, their average lifetime as pilots was six weeks. Which is, uh, which is pretty bad. Mark you, in Bomber Command, um, if you were flying Stirlings, you had a 5% chance of coming back from each raid. Over a period of uh, 30 raids, uh, your chances of survival were less than 25%. And um, that took a lot of courage too. I'm just grateful that I was never called upon to fly Stirlings. I was very, very fortunate. I flew mosquitoes, what was known as the Wooden Wonder. They were remarkable planes, and um, if it's a privilege to be here, it was also a privilege to fly mosquitoes. <laughs> well, it was, and I love the connection with mosquitoes, Colin, because obviously Geoffrey de Havilland made his first flight from Highclere, in 1910. So there's a lovely connection with Geoffrey de Havilland and the extraordinary planes he created and yes. built from the moths to the mosquitoes, which has formed part of my research because his father was vicar at Crux Easton, just five, four miles from where we're sitting yes. in a beautiful part of the world. You really feel you're on, you're on top of the world with these skies all around you. 
but he took off from just a mile and a half yeah. to the south southeast of us in 1910 and and the mosquito was an amazing plane yes and i think it used to really annoy the germans because the bullets used to go straight through the wood didn't they yes i'd like to pay tribute to jeffrey de Havilland because um he was not only a man of vision he was just brilliant and um when he designed the first mosquito he tried to sell it to the air ministry and the um the civil servants up there uh, poured scorn on it. They, they didn't want to have any part of it. And, uh, but he persevered using his own money and um, in the teeth of opposition, he produced this fantastic aircraft. And of course, once they saw it flying and the, uh, the way it behaved, um, then they, they all changed their minds and uh, they backed it. But it, if it hadn't been for uh, Jeffrey de Havilland's vision and courage, and, uh, and, courage yeah. and putting his own money behind it, we should have never had the uh, mosquito. A word about the mosquito. It could carry the same weight of, um, of bombs to Berlin as an uh, American flying fortress, and it could make the journey there and back in half the time that a flying fortress took. So in theory, you could go there and back twice on a mosquito uh, to equal the, to double the tonnage uh, that the flying fortress carried. It really was a remarkable aircraft, yeah. And it was very fast, wasn't it? That was one yes, of its it was advantages. Yes, it exceedingly fast. There were no uh, propeller-driven night fighters that could carry, that could, uh, that could catch the mosquito, and that's why probably I'm here today. <laughs> um, the only aircraft that could catch the mosquito was a jet aircraft, and I had a tangle with one of those on one occasion, but I got rid of him. <laughs> oh, did you? Yes. How amazing. And so how many of you were flying the mosquito? I beg your pardon? How many of you were flying the Mosquito? There oh, was just two of us. Just two of you. I, I had a Canadian navigator who was a brilliant man, best navigator on the squadron. I was very lucky to have him. He was with me throughout the whole of my tour of operations, which was 50 flights, 50, 50 trips. Yeah. Wow, yeah. how amazing. And was that always towards Berlin and Germany? Where, where did the operations take you? Was it always in Europe or was it also abroad? I think we did one daylight raid outside Germany, but um, all the other raids were at night over Germany. They weren't very friendly. And <laughs> it, was, it was an interesting experience. Um, I had the satisfaction of knowing that we were carrying the war to the enemy and destroying their capacity uh, to attack us. And that's what I try and put over when I'm talking about Bomber Command. The whole objective was to destroy their war-making capacity uh, so that they could attack us. And by us, I mean our men, our women, our children. 
So our family, it was uh, it, our it town. was something that was necessary. Yeah. Uh, sad, but there we are. As um, as somebody once said, with you know, we didn't start it, did we? We were just defending ourselves. No, and I think there was little chance to come to a um, treaty. There, there was there were few moments where there might have been, it might have been possible to make a treaty within World War II. It was an all-or-nothing war. There was no chance to discuss, to negotiate. There, it was like a huge train which was going to lead to one side or the other, annihilating the other. There was no discussion possible. Well, once the war has commenced, yes. that was perfectly true. And uh, before it commenced, we did what we could. Lord Halifax wanted to strike a deal with Hitler, and um, Churchill would have no part of it. Of course, Churchill was right, he always was. One of my heroes. <laughs> I think he's many people's heroes, yeah. and in that case, I think his judgment was more right than Lord Halifax, yeah. who was a remarkable man, but I think it was a, Adolf Hitler, Hitler had, a, had an amorality which was better understood by Churchill yeah. than Halifax, if yeah. you like. But the mosquito, do you know how many mosquitoes were made during World War II? Oh, was it about 8,000. 8,000? Yeah. Wow. And if you, somebody once asked me, well, how many, how many people flew mosquitoes? Well, if there were two for every plane that was built, and there's probably more than that, we're talking about in excess of 16,000 crew to navigate one pilot, yeah. Yes, and I'm sure there were more than that as well. I think so, Because um, yeah. overall their record of coming back was quite good because of their extraordinary construction, as far as I understood, compared yes, to well, some of the other bombers. <laughs> uh, they talk about it as being a wooden wonder, but by the time the wood had all been put together with laminates and well, pressure and everything else, I always felt that uh, it was as good as metal. Was it very cold when you were flying at night? Did it... No, the heating in, in, the, uh, in the aircraft was exceedingly good. Oh, was I it? used to just fly in what is known as a battle dress, which is really in fact a bit like this. No problem at all, excepting on one occasion <laughs> the heating failed and the temperature outside was about minus 40. <gasps> and um, I really don't know how I flew the thing back. When I got back, I, one of my fitters had to lift me out of the plane almost in a sitting position. <laughs> that my wasn't goodness. much fun. No, yeah. my goodness, my goodness. So were there, were there any particular memorable sorties, memorable flights that you had? Were there, things, were there some well, of your flights the, that really the, stuck out? I suppose the most memorable one, apart from being chased around the sky by a jet... Uh, uh, by a jet aircraft, at least I assume, I've always assumed it was a jet aircraft. I never saw him. It was all done by electronics, but I won't go into that. You say memorable. Yes. Uh, once we were unfortunate enough to have a shell burst under us, and uh, it lifted the whole plane up. And because we had um, old-fashioned carburetors, it stopped both engines. And my navigator said, um, what do we do now? And I said, well, we must wait. What else can we do? 
after what seemed like six months, the engines restarted and we got back home. In the morning I went out to the back of the, to look at the aircraft and the whole of the back of it was shredded like a calendar, so it's a good thing that it didn't get to the front. And uh, my fitter came up to me and uh, he said, um, I thought you'd like to have these as a memento, sir. I said, what are they? And he said, well, they're two shell fragments. And I said, oh, where did you get them from? He said, they were in the, in, in the parachute that you were sitting on. <laughs> wow. So I said, oh, mm. good thing they didn't penetrate any further. Stupidly, I threw them away. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wish I still had them. <laughs> You flew throughout the war, and then at the end of the war, did you stay with the RAF, Colin? Or? Well, I had the opportunity of staying. My wife would have no part of it. She said, I've been with you all through the war. I don't really want you to continue as a regular RAF officer. So I said, well, good enough. You're more important to me than a career in the RAF. I said, I'll go in for civil flying because I said, the only thing I'm qualified to do is, um, is to be a pilot. No, no, she said, that will be the end of our marriage. <laughs> she was probably right. So I said, well, what can I do? And she said, well, you can always go back to what you were training to do when, um, you know, when war broke out. And I said, but I'm not qualified. I was training to be a chartered surveyor. Right. And uh, I said, I'm not qualified. <clears throat> and I said, we're going to be desperately hungry all the time I am qualifying. She said, no, no problem. We'll overcome it. Because she's a woman of wonderful character, apart from being wonderfully attractive. And uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's what I did. I went back. And actually, I worked for the government. Uh, I qualified. Uh, I became a chartered surveyor. I stayed working for the government until I retired at the age of about 60 or 62. Then I set up my own practice and I went on working till nine months ago. And Fantastic. So, <laughs> and, and at that point, I felt I'd given the Chancellor of the Exchequer enough by way of tax. So I, I stopped. It's been a great life. I've been extraordinarily lucky, haven't I? Mm. Well, you have, but it seems to me, so the first question I, I must ask you is, where did you meet this wonderfully attractive woman with a great character? Where did you meet your wife? Oh! <laughs> it's quite a story. <laughs> she came to work as a secretary. Remember, she was younger than me. Uh, I was about 19 at the time, and she was 17. She came to work as a secretary to the manager in the office. She hated me. <laughs> she used to go back and complain bitterly to her family about how she had to put up with that terrible boy. <laughs> and I was always trying to get her to come out with me. And uh, as you realise, I wasn't making much progress. But every girl at that day wanted to go and see Vivian Lee and Clark Gable with Gone With The Wind. Absolutely. <laughs> and um, so I phoned up the Empire Leicester Square and I said to the box office girl, is there any chance of getting a couple of tickets for 
um, gone with the win. And she said, oh, you must be joking, we're booked up for the next six months. And I said, my whole future depends on this. Oh, well, she said, look, if you come up before six o'clock on Friday night, I might have a couple of tickets for you. So armed with that, I went back to my lovely Kath and I said, um, I've got my father's car on Friday night and um, I've got two tickets gone with the wind. Uh, would you like to come with me? And I could see her sort of fighting. <laughs> she said, oh, well, all right. <laughs> so off we went. And uh, we had a lovely evening. And uh, I, uh, we thoroughly enjoyed the film. I took her for supper afterwards. And I got her home to her father at half past two in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> After that, we never looked back. How lovely. No. She was finally convinced you yeah. weren't that irritating boy. <laughs> so this must have been in 1940 or something like that, was it? Well, it was. It was uh, 1940. Just Then, of course, I volunteered for the RAF. And, um, and then you were based she, she went up north with her father because they were um, relocated out of London. And I lost touch. Uh, but uh, while I was in America, because I was training in America, and then I eventually became an instructor out in America. But while I was out there, I wrote to her. Uh, I came back and um, I met up with her. And, um, well, we were married in the space of three months, yes. How wonderful. Yeah. Where were you living at that point, Colin? It, what, in this country? Yeah, it, yes, in this country. When oh, you were I was living... At a place called East Molesey, right. it's the other side of Hampton Court Bridge. Right. Yeah. Okay. And uh, delightful spot. Um, I was living with my parents, of course, because I was quite a young man. And uh, uh, then I volunteered for the RAF, and uh, I went up to Oxford. And uh, I suppose at that time they had um, hundred applicants for every place. Because every young man wanted to be really? a pilot in the Royal Air Force. I was interviewed by not a very sympathetic board. In fact, I could feel the chill in the air. And uh, I remember the engineering officer saying to me, he thought he'd get rid of me, he said, uh, you say that you can um, maintain uh, your motorcycle engine and I said, yes, I'll strip it down and put it back together again. And he said, um, well, in that case, he said, you'll have no trouble telling me how fast the um, camshaft runs in relation to the crankshaft. And then he looked around, you see. Well, it was the one question I could answer. And I said, <laughs> half time. And the whole atmosphere in the room changed. Oh, thank goodness for that, Colin. Um, so I was in. <laughs> you were in. How and uh, that was on such small things, a whole career depends. Isn't that extraordinary? Mm. Yeah. It really is. And it, also the coincidence, if you like, of, of your wife-to-be working in an office where you were. And, and again, that choice and the luck that you managed to get the tickets and persuade her. And, That's right. And again, the happiness that... Being, being in love and being with a partner you adore for so many years of your life just well, we were married. that. Yes, we were married for 73 years. Wow. 
That is amazing. Yeah. Colin, it's amazing. What yeah. an achievement. And then you've had children and grandchildren as well, and great-grandchildren, I'd imagine. I had a, um, I had a girl and a boy in that order, uh, while the girl was up in Downham Market. She was six weeks old while I was on operations. Wow. And, um, and then later on, I had a son, and um, then we had a whole series of uh, grandchildren, and I've now got uh, five great-grandchildren. Stunning. Yeah. Absolutely so stunning, Colin. It's, uh, uh, it's been, until I lost my wife, and I mean, that's a body blow from which you never really recover. Um, it was, um, it was a very happy existence, but uh, since then I've just, um, I've done the only thing possible, and that's to go forward. Yes. Yeah. And, um, and it's not too bad, I've, um, I make the best of it. Mm. Well, I'm so happy that you've come here to chat to all of us. And if there's, what do you try to pass on to your children? What did you try to pass on to your children, Colin? What, what, what did you want them to take from your life? Was it, was it the, the, the trying? Was it the courage? Was it, what, what did you want to pass on to them? That is a very difficult question. <laughs> um, children, by and large, um, Ignore you. Don't, 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 <laughs> don't take too kindly to guidance and advice from their parents. No, they don't. And um, I did bring my son up to be a charter surveyor, <laughs> and for the last 30 years he's been my partner. How lovely. And uh, so uh, that was okay. I don't know really what they got out of it. Um, um, I, I like to think that um, they, they probably got much more from their mother than they did from me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm sure that is true, because she was a very talented girl. She was uh, uh, expert in, on, on art history. And um, yes, I think that um, they, uh, she was their role model rather than me. Um, but um, maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> it is very hard. I was, suppose I was thinking that, again, in World War II, there were very challenging times for you and your family, for the compromises you made, for the fact your wife every ha had to say goodbye to you in the morning and hope that you came back in the evening. Yes. And, and it was that um, courage and belief and confidence that again we're trying to find today in a way that we haven't had to for some time. No. So it's just again, but it's very hard, you know, I'm thinking what I can pass on to my son and he doesn't want to hear anything <laughs> from me. But I hope sometimes it's the stories, it's the stories and the fact that he sees that we're trying, yes. that we're trying to do our best. So I suppose I was wondering what you thought or, you know, whether whether your daughter or your son might have seen in their, their parents. Because I think some of these lessons from history yes. are, have never been more important, Colin. Yes. Well, I've been... I suppose my children got 
moral guidance from, um, from both myself and um, my wife, particularly my wife, and uh, they've been very good children. They haven't got in. They haven't got involved in crime or drugs or anything of that sort. They've lived um, very good lives, and um, I'm immensely proud of them. Mm. Yeah, yeah. As I'm sure they are of you. Well. <laughs> <laughs> so can I ask, with your mosquitoes, how many planes did you get through? Did you? have to keep swapping plane as they were shot down then and um, try again, Colin? I suppose I, I used to swap around on two or three planes, but I didn't always fly the same plane. But um, I tried to as much as I could. Uh, but um, it didn't matter. They, they were all excellent planes. And I got a wonderful flight sergeant uh, in charge of maintenance. I mean, he was worth his weight in gold and he'd work out at night with fitters and riggers and um, in appalling conditions and made sure that the aircraft was in good shape. And um, I used to respond by um, taking down to him um, a quantity of rum that um, used to be dished out to me by a very, very attractive waff when I used to come back from operations, you know. They'd give you a mug of tea that was about a pint of it, and then this lovely girl used to arrive with a big, big ginger beer barrel full of rum, and wow. she used to say, would you like to have a little rum in your tea, sir? <laughs> <laughs> and I used to say, no, but you can tip it into this bottle. <laughs> so, because I thought they needed rum, down on the uh, dispersal mm. much more than I did, yes. Extraordinary times. Did the, those who flew mosquitoes, did you have a better chance of coming back than in a Spitfire or a flying fortress? What was the most dangerous plane to fly, Colin, do you know? Oh, without question, the flying fortress. The tour for flying fortress crews, uh, these are all American crews, was uh, 25 missions. They were lucky if they did five before getting shot down because um, there was a theory advanced by their generals that um, if they all stayed in close formation, they'd be able to defend themselves, but it didn't work. And um, eventually they had to give up daylight bombing because the loss rate was so horrendous. I mean, they went to some targets and they lost 45% of their number just on one raid. I mean, it was simply appalling. But it all changed when um, uh, they produced an aircraft known as the Mustang. And um, the Mustang had an Addison engine, which wasn't all that good, but... Um, they decided they'd have Rolls-Royce Merlins in. And once the Rolls-Royce Merlin was in, it became a super uh, plane. They could escort uh, flying fortresses all the way to Berlin and back. And they literally drove the Luftwaffe out of the sky in daylight. Yeah. So, yes, if you ask me that question, which was the most dangerous plane to fly, 
I'd say without question, it was the Flying Fortress. Mm. How interesting. And obviously, one crashed in the hills above here, yeah. just on a practice run. And The aircraft that I flew was a Canadian-built Mosquito, and it had Packard Merlin engines in. And somebody once said to me, well, were they as good as the um, Rolls-Royce-built Merlins? And I said, well, yes, but they had one weakness. Some of them uh, suffered from uh, a weak conrod. Uh, and if you were taking off at night and uh, with full bomb load, or with your flaps down and your undercarriage down, with your engine on full power, if the conrod broke, then the engine failed. And um, then uh, you had no choice. You, 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 couldn't, you couldn't continue climbing. You just had to um, uh, do the best you could and land the plane. And at night, that was a very, very hazardous business. So we did lose one or two people in that way. And um, so the engineer came down on one occasion from Packard Merlin, and he said, well, we're putting this right. And somebody said, uh, well, how long will it take to put it right? So he said, well, we, about three months, we'll change all the engines and make, you know, as soon as they come in for service, we'll, we'll change them. And one of our numbers said to the flight commander, uh, well, what do we do meanwhile? He said, you go on just the same as before, maximum effort. <laughs> so we had to continue knowing there was a chance, not a very big chance, but there was just that chance that um, your engine would fail on takeoff. And uh, uh, somebody said, well, what do we do? And um, some wag said, well, you just go in and head and die like an officer and a gentleman. Oh, golly. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you maximum effort and you come yeah. back to live to fight another day, which is what I think everybody wants, mm. would have wanted you all to do. But how extraordinary. Colin, there are so many stories you could share. And um, perhaps there may be some questions which come out of this, which then I can come back to you on at a later date which would be so interesting. And I imagine above all, there was tremendous camaraderie for you within the squadron, within all the crew who are keeping your aircraft yes. going. Well, and that must have been the heart of what helped you yeah. go up each day. Yeah. Well, I am, I am in touch with the son of my Canadian navigator. Are you? Yes. How amazing. And um, uh, he came over to see me recently I offered to uh, give hospitality to his wife as well. And she said, um, you're like this. And she said, no, no, this is a man's thing. I don't think I'll be particularly interested in coming. So um, I looked her up on Facebook and I saw that she was a devoted follower of Downton Abbey. <laughs> so. I said to her, well, I'm due to go down to see Lady Carnarvon uh, at um, Highclere Castle uh, in about uh, six months' time. Uh, are you sure that you don't want to come? 
And of course, she she was very very keen to come, but sadly, <laughs> she can't reasons I won't go into. Mm-hmm. It cannot be. But of course, the um, the story of Downton Abbey has gone worldwide. Yes. It's, uh, it's very very popular in America and in Canada and in Australia. Well, Colin, I hope you'll let. I think he was called Doug, your navigator. Sorry? I, ho- I hope you'll ne- let your navigator's daughter-in-law know that when she is over, she must come and see us. Of course. Another time. But, yes. Thank well, you very much. It's been a, a joy to be interviewed by you. Oh, and, Colin, thank uh, you. Um, I hope we shall meet up again. That'd be absolutely lovely, yeah. Colin. Thank you. Thank That's you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening to this week's podcast. I don't want you to miss out on the next one, so please do try and press the subscribe button.